Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Marianne Sullivan. And this is Jasmine Singer. And we have something so special for you this week. You are going to be so excited. Well, I am so excited, I tell you. Jasmine's guest is Ivana Lynch, who, of course, played Luton Lovegood in the Harry Potter movies. Have you heard about the Harry Potter movies? That You know, they were around a few years ago. And who is an icon of vegan activism through her podcast, Chick Peeps, her company, Kinder Beauty, and her brand new memoir, The Opposite of Butterfly Hunting. She is also a really fascinating person, a really lovely human being with a very, very important story to tell. And this is an amazing interview. Oh, my God. Yeah, we had so much fun. And it's actually an extended episode today because Evie and I, well, I wouldn't let her get off the the interview, basically. That's why. But we also chatted for our flock bonus segment together. So if you're in the flock, make sure you stay tuned for that. I'll be continuing an enlightening discussion with Evie. You will find out about it if you're in the flock through the bonus segment that will be emailed to you on Tuesday after this podcast episode goes up. And you can always find it on the flock Facebook group. And if you're not a member of the flock and you can afford it, you can join for $10 a month at ourhenhouse.org slash donate. And of course, if you are a flock member, you can and please do join us for our flock first Friday Zoom calls, which are once a month on the first Friday of the month at 4 p.m. Eastern. That's 8 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time. And we, you know, talk about this. We talk about that. We talk some about activism. We talk about how crazy the world is, which, you know, we could be on for 200 hours if we were just going to talk about that. And we speak to a lot of inspiring guests, a lot of whom have been on the podcast. So if you're a member of the Flock, check out the Flock Facebook group for updates, or you can always write to us at info at ourhenhouse.org. And you can also set up one-on-one conversations with Jasmine. How's that going, Jasmine? So fun, so moving. And I think a lot of people got the memo because I've been doing so many a week. I actually probably am at capacity for the amount I I can do in my schedule every week. And every week I'm like, oh, I might need to bump some because I I also have a full-time job. But then I just get so much out of them that I'm squeezing them in during my lunch break afterward. I love them. Yeah, you're always talking about them. And, you know, this great thing somebody said and, and what a great conversation you had. Yeah, just people are really really eager to make a difference in the world. And it is such an honor to be on the other end of those Zoom calls, you know? And I I have felt like that about co-hosting this podcast with you for the past 12 years. It is such an honor to be able to interview people like Evie and all of the incredible guests that we have. And now I get to do the same thing with our flock members, some of whom we, we also say, hey, come on as a guest, because Many of our flock members in their own right are doing tremendous work to change the world for animals. So it has been awesome. And now that Thanksgiving is over, it is officially, well, actually, it's it's been officially the holiday season for about a month now because my birthday ca- always kicks that off as far as I'm concerned. But with Hanukkah starting this week, one of my other favorite times of the year is finally upon us. And it gives me an opportunity to sing the song that I wrote called Latkes, Latkes, Latkes. Oh my God. Do you want to hear it? Are you asking me? Are you asking the universe? Well, all of the above. I'll take that as a yes. Ready? Latkes, latkes, latkes. You made them out of oppression. And since I cannot eat them, I go into a depression. That was lovely. And I think we should remind people that it is entirely possible to get, or at least to make vegan latkes, which are of of course, 
potato pancakes, a very specific type of potato pancakes. They're yummy, of course, because like, how could they not be? They're a potato and they're a pancake. You know, right now I'm wearing a potato necklace that more got me for my birth. I haven't taken it off since then because it's like my, my love language is potatoes. Okay, I want to provide a context for that song. Marisa Miller-Wolfson, my friend, and I, the of course, she is the mastermind behind the Vegucated brand and the, the Vegucated family table as well. And years ago, we used to do workshops in New York City. You remember quite well. We did workshops on veganism for years together. And we were doing one in the back room of Bonobos, which was a, a raw vegan cafe right off Madison Square Park, which was very close to your office. And we did a, a vegan for the holidays workshop and Issa Chandra Moskowitz came in as a guest and, and talked about some recipes. And part of my introduction to her was to sing that song and then say, fix it. <laughs> and then she, she has wonderful latke recipes that I still use. Every Hanukkah, I think about that. I can't hear dreidel, dreidel, dreidel without thinking of that song. I remember one year, okay, I'm pivoting here, but go with, go with it. One year we did a protest in New York City. We, we took part in a protest that James Caroni was organizing against the horse-drawn carriages. And he rewrote all of the Christmas carols to be songs about why people shouldn't get on horse-drawn carriages. Do you remember this? Of course I remember it. Are you joking? So Let It Snow became I, Let Them I Go. stood in Columbus Circle with like 10 other vegans and sang songs, Christmas let, songs let about them go, horse, let them horses go, and carriages. And you think I'm going to forget that? Well, okay. So the Let Them Go song, I can't hear Let It Snow. I only think Let Them Go. And I can't hear Tradle, Tradle, Tradle. I just hear Lockers, Lockers, Lockers. It's so funny that if you've been to enough protests and creative protests or, you know, you've been advocating for veganism for long enough like okay here's another one i can't think of that lady gaga song bad romance instead right. i just think bad, hotel, bad hotel because it was like a, a a flash mob activist scene you should google it if you don't know what i'm talking about which you probably don't because this is over 10 years ago google flash mob bad hotel seriously do it and that had nothing and, i want to add we were not in any way responsible for that or participating. No, in no, 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 not at all. We just started. That, <laughs> that one was because this this group of activists were coming together to like because there were the you know they were union busters for this hotel chain in San Francisco, and every time I hear the Lady Gaga song, I think this is a bad bad hotel. I can't think bad romance. So anyway, I'll, I I just went on a giant tangent and let's bring it back and say, I'm so excited that it's Hanukkah. I think it's weird when Hanukkah and Christmas are so separate in the calendar because it's like then Hanukkah ends. And I don't know, something weird about it. But the plus side is it elongates gift giving. And I am a big gift giving aficionado. I love giving gifts. I love gifts, all of it. In fact, my shameless plug, one of my recent newsletters, which you can find at jasminesinger.substack.com. No E shameless on Jasmine. Plug. Shameless plug. I said shameless plug. Is about my complicated relationship with gift giving because I like just want to buy billions of dollars worth of gifts for people. And I don't have that in my budget, but I like don't know when to stop my gift giving instincts. So it's some, anyway, but I am so excited that it is the holidays and I'm so excited that Hanukkah is upon us. My mommy 
sent me eight presents because she still does that. I get one present a night for my mommy. They're little, I mean, like, like socks or something, but you know, it's so fun. Life is so short. Curl your hair like I just did. I got a perm. All right, can I, I just had interrupt one. to tell the audience? Get, that get we decided, tattoos. We decided to keep the intro to the show very short today because your intro, your I know, I can't long, stop talking. And just, you have not stopped talking. I know, but it's because I had another an extra coffee. I just can't stop. Okay. Seriously, it. All it, right. I just, can there, are two, there are a couple other things I wanted to talk about. One is that the Animal Law podcast just went up. It goes up the last Wednesday of the month. So I'd love it if you would talk about it a little bit. Yeah, I would I would like to talk about that since it's more important than the socks from your mommy. But it's a it's an amazing, amazing, amazing interview. This is such a week for our hen house. I interview Steve Wise of the Non-Human Rights Project, and he is talking about this case. You know, he's been doing these habeas corpus cases for a while on behalf of animals, mostly in New York State, so a few in Connecticut. They've all been unsuccessful. And and a while back, he got leave to appeal to the Court of Appeals, which is practically miraculous. They did not have to take this case. This is the highest court in the state of New York. And he's going to be arguing on behalf of Happy the Elephant, who is living in solitary, inadequate conditions at the Bronx Zoo, which is run by the Wildlife Conservation Society. And he's going to be arguing that in front of the highest court in the state of New York. It's mind-blowing. His interview is so good because he really like spells it out, uh, you know, what all the arguments are. I'm super excited about it. Yeah. I am too. I love what you've been doing with the Animal Law Podcast. And like, I can't think of a better guest than him and a better host than you. And I will let you know what socks my mommy got me for Hanukkah, just to bring it full circle. Very exciting stuff. Last thing I wanted to mention is that our friend Jane Velez Mitchell, who you know, if you're listening to this, has taken her Jane Unchained Facebook live show and expanded not only it, but like all vegan videos that like have that exists <laughs> that she can get her hands on into an incredible streaming service called Unchained TV, one word. So if you go onto your app store on your phone or on Roku TV or you name it, you can get Unchained TV. I've been watching it like while brushing my teeth. I like to hit live and see what's playing live so I don't have to make any decisions. But th- they're actually airing the old Our Hen House TV shows that we used to record uh, it, in Brooklyn years ago that had a limited reach because it, it aired on New York City TV. And so now you could watch it on Unchained TV and it's fun. So fun. So she's only airing the interviews, though, not the part where we talk to each other, because I think she thought that was boring. She <laughs> thought it was terrible. Yeah. So maybe we should shut up and get to the interview. Is this because I talked about Hanukkah socks? <laughs> All right. The interview, the interview. Okay. Everybody's waiting. As an activist, Ivana focuses on animal rights, animal welfare, and vegan activism, and not only deals with these topics in her podcast, The Chick Peeps, but also runs a vegan, cruelty-free beauty subscription box company called Kinder Beauty with her friends, Daniela Monet and Andrew Bernstein, where, as you may know, Jasmine also works. Ivana just released her first book, The Opposite of Butterfly Hunting, The Tragedy and the Glory of Growing Up, a memoir, which you will hear more about in this interview. She will be joining Jasmine right after this. So 
social media has become such an important part of almost all of our lives. So please make Our Hen House part of that social media experience for you. You can like us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram. We try to post some news stories to help you keep up to date on what's happening in the world for animals. You can also find us online, of course, uh, on our website, ourhenhouse.org, or you can email us. If you have some concerns or questions or something you'd like us to discuss on the podcast, let us know. Info at ourhenhouse.org. Welcome to our henhouse, Evie. <gasps> Thank you. Great, great to be back. Thanks for having me. I'm so happy to have you. It, I've been wanting to talk to you for a really long time. I know you were on once before, but it was, and that was in person, um, which was really great. But I am so excited about digging a little deeper. And I couldn't be more excited about interviewing you about your book, The Opposite mm-hmm. of Butterfly Hunting, which mm-hmm. recently came out. So congratulations and Thank welcome you. to the, the mad, mad world of being a memoirist. Oh, it is weird, isn't it? At this age, people keep going like, so why did you write it now? <laughs> It's like, oh, I'm not sure. By the way, Jazz, before we start, can I just say, it's so funny, in the background, your blanket was moving and it looked like a magic (laughs) effect, but then I realized there must be somebody under there. (laughs) There is. There is somebody under there. I would imagine it's Bernie, but it's, I'm not, I'm not always sure because I have many somebodies who could be under there, but generally speaking, that's, that's Bernie's. That's so Bye. sweet. Oh, <laughs> so just funny. wrapped in a blanket. What a life. I know. I know, right? I know. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. Yeah. Yes. Memoirs. No, it's good. I actually would love it if this entire conversation were about our littles because yeah. <laughs> I would personally like that. But uh, yeah, before we really dive into the interview, I, I do want to start by saying to our listeners that in addition to having the joy of working with you, Evie, at Kinder Beauty, which our listeners already know is a vegan cruelty-free beauty subscription box that you co-founded with Daniela Monet and Andrew Bernstein. I've also really loved getting to know you as my friend these past few years. Yeah, definitely in the past year, especially. You're Mm -hmm. just somebody I so respect as an activist, not just in animal rights, but everything really. Like I always, you know that I always kind of sense check things with you when I'm not sure because I feel like you're always doing so much work to better yourself and the world around you. And um, yeah, I'm very grateful to have you as a friend. Oh, thank you. Well, I think like attracts like because I am constantly seeking out, you know, truth seekers and people who are interested in growing and learning about the world and about themselves and their relationship to the world. So reading your story with that in mind has had this like extra surreal part to it. (laughs) And now that I think of it, I know how my friends must have felt when they read my memoir because It's weird. It's weird. Like when you know someone who wrote it, I think it's mm. not as weird when it's it's a stranger. And it is a very special feeling having your personal story out there. So let, let's just yeah. start there. Yeah. It's weird though, isn't it? Because I think I was so nervous to put it out there. I mean, I knew I had to because I knew it was just like, well, even to shake up the public perception of, of me. And, and that's the thing when you... When you get a job young and it's like an iconic character like in Harry Potter, that that does follow you around. And it is hard to even just get people to know the real you because I'm always afraid of like disappointing. But I knew I had to. I knew I had to do something that just kind of shook up the energy, put myself out there. But I was really nervous about how, yeah, friends and family would receive it. I kind of felt like, oh my God, they now they hear all my inner dark thoughts. People are <laughs> going to change their mind. They're going to they're gonna go off me. What has shocked me is the amount of people who have just been like, 
well, I knew this, this is who you were. You, you just never really spoke about it. People do see that. They do know your depths. It's just, and, and yeah, the people who get you, it's actually not surprising. I think that's been weird to, to realize that, oh, I could have actually just been braver about who I was because people already got it. Yeah. Wow. That's really interesting. I've never heard it described that way. And speaking of the reception uh, from others, I did chuckle recently at a at an Instagram post of yours that was joking about how, how every single person in your home country of Ireland has gotten a copy with. Oh <laughs> which... my God. It's horrifying. Because <laughs> well, I wrote it with target audience in mind. I was like, this is for young people, pro- mostly women, because I, you know, a lot, mostly women struggle with it, but, but there are obviously other people, men and non-binary people who struggle with it. But I'm just saying, I was like, okay, this is my target audience. And it's also sensitive people. And I remember when I was writing it, my mom kept asking me to change adjectives about certain neighbors. And I was like, mom, that guy's not going to read the book. Not going to be bothered. <laughs> what are you talking about? I was like, you're being far too paranoid. She, she made me change one, like, let's say character about 10 times. She, and this was her nightmare. She'd wake up in the middle of the night being like, I just think you should maybe not describe him as tall because I think that will give it away. And um, I really thought she was being paranoid. But ever since it's been out, it's just like, oh, wow. Okay. You just got to assume everyone's going to read it. Partly because they want to support you, but also because people are nosy. You know, <laughs> people right. are like, they want to know what's going on. People are curious to know. And I would be the same if somebody I'd known as a child wrote a memoir. I'd be like, mm, let's let's find out the the real story. And I would never write a nonfiction book again without the assumption that everyone I know and their mother and their teacher and their grandparents are going to read it, especially in Ireland. <laughs> but you have to like put that out of your head when you're writing it because of I had that happen. I, I remember when I was writing Always Too Much and Never Enough, repeatedly saying to Marianne, like, I don't know if I can write this about, you know, my mother or that experience yeah, I had. Yeah. And she was like, you know what, just put it down on paper. We'll deal with it later. And of course, we never went back and took it out. I just left it in. And that- yeah, yeah. Yeah. I it's had, weird, a, I had that with, with parents. Did. Absolutely. Well, my mom is a lot in the book. It's a lot about our relationship, much more than my dad. Yeah, I re- I just felt like, you know what, I have to put it all down. I have to speak the truth. And then we can have those conversations. But that was probably the hardest part of the writing the book because I-, I-, I left it till the very last minute to send it to people and have these conversations because I was a terrified of of having to confront these past things that we we don't talk about anymore. And B, I was just terrified that they would change the whole book and then be like, oh no, I can't actually tell this story. But I was really amazed. My my mother, and you know, she's quite a shy, quiet person. She's not somebody who wants to be in the spotlight, but she didn't change one single thing about herself and how I described her. She just did the mother thing of looking out for my siblings, being like, oh, maybe don't say that about them. You need to check if they want that story in there. So I was really amazed and and grateful for how generous she was in letting me share that story and I've only really recently been like because she's been saying she told me a while ago that she was very anxious and she's been finding it hard to sleep in the lead up to publication and I I had been so like in my own world in my own head thinking just about me and I was like wow this is huge for her too and she's been since been sending me messages from some of her friends who said they're sharing it with their daughter or yeah other mothers and daughters are reading it and I just like, I'm so grateful that that has been the feedback for me, but also for her, you know, to be like, cool, this is what happens when you share your story, when you are vulnerable and honest with the world. Um, So yeah, I couldn't have written it without her at all, really. 
your mother, the way you wrote about her in the book, and, and your father, actually, and his obsession with potatoes. And by the way, I'm wearing, <laughs> I'm wearing a potato necklace right no now. Yeah, but I love potatoes. I can't imagine that's a thing. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Potato necklace. It was just one of my birthday gifts from Moore. Aww. Your mother, oh, Evie, I was sobbing. Like, mm-hmm. and I don't. I don't generally cry when I read. I was listening to the audiobook and I was driving. I I was on a long road trip by myself. So you kept me company the whole time. And there were times when I was like, I can't cry. I can't cry, man. <laughs> oh, I'm trying to blink away the tears. But there were so oh. many moments that you captured. Like one springs to mind when you were in um, a hospital and you were very young. I think it was the first time. And your mother left her scarf there. And when she came back and and basically said, so should I just leave this? Should I just leave this here? Do you want me to leave this here? And you kind of angrily sort of turned away to almost hurt, to try and almost hurt her. But obviously you were just in so much pain. And I feel like I'm going to cry again Mm -hmm. because the way you described that moment and your mother in it, and it was beautiful. I don't even, I didn't even write this down in my notes, my questions for you. I just, that is such a powerful scene to me. It's weird, isn't it? Usually the moments that really affect you and that you cry at are what speaks to other people. It's weird. I mean, it's the same with acting. When you feel it deep inside, somebody else will get that too. And so, yeah, that moment, I found that really hard to write down to get through because I clearly remember yeah, just being so angry with her and wanting to punish her and to hurt her, and but then also really needing her there. I think it's such an important part of the book because I needed to show... I'm trying to show both sides in the book, trying to show what it's like to be a young child going through something like anorexia and going through the medical system. But I also wanted to show the parents, like I couldn't have had better parents, you know, they gave unconditional love. Like they never gave up on me. It was always, even though I was a little brat, like I was a little nightmare, a real, (laughs) my therapist read the book and she was like, wow, you were a weapon. And I was like, yeah, that's a good (laughs) word. I was a weapon. You know, they did everything right in terms of constantly helping and trying to get treatment, but they still made mistakes with treatment and it still wasn't easy. Because I think a lot of the time, people are looking for a root cause or they blame the parents or they say, oh, something must have happened in childhood. And I I needed to kind of show, uh, like that's mental health doesn't work that way, mental illness really. I needed to show a, a family or a portrait of a really great loving family who didn't have really any issues and yet this was still a thing and and there wasn't an easy fix for it. So yeah, hopefully I, I those anecdotes, I, I chose them to show these moments of just like, the struggle of the parents and my struggle as well. Yeah. Well, it worked. I mean, your writing is spectacular. I was blown away. And I know that that is like one of your greatest loves, if not your greatest love is writing. And well, is that actually, Ooh, am I, am I wrong? Love hate there. Love hate. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I think I express myself best in writing. I feel like I can get my, my, my true feelings across in the best way, in the clearest way. And I also have the most confidence in my writing. Like I, I wouldn't be confident in, in other, like in acting, I'd be quite insecure and other forms of expression. But writing's the one where I'm like, yes, I've said how I needed, what I need to say. And I feel a sense of like satisfaction. A writer I like, she said that recently that we write for ourselves to express our darkest selves to ourselves. And and I think I that is so true for me. I don't really write for other people. I write to understand myself better. And afterwards, I always feel like, yes, cool. That's what I meant. Now I can let that story go. But 
I don't think it's very enjoyable. <laughs> I don't know. There's another saying, it might be Dorothy Parker, but I might be misattributing that, which is, I hate writing. I love having written. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's yeah. it. That's nailed it. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Well, let's back up for our, our listeners who haven't yet read it. Uh, the opposite of butterfly hunting, the tragedy and glory of growing up is, in its simplest terms, a coming of age story about a very deep creative soul you and your struggles, sometimes life-threatening with eating disorders. Now, before I ask you to share some specifics about your book, since I know our listeners are very passionate about personal narrative being used to help create social change, let me ask you this. At what point in your journey did you decide you're going to write a memoir about your struggles around your eating disorder journey? It was actually always in the back of my mind. Like As soon as I started speaking, speaking about it publicly, which was probably when I was about 16, 17, I think I said, yeah, yeah, someday I'll write a book. I knew I would do it. But I think over the years, there's sort of almost been this mounting pressure or just this building idea because people would, every interview I've ever done since I've spoken about this, people always ask about the eating disorder. And it started to frustrate me. Like it annoyed me because it was like, can I never get past this? Can I never be more than my past mental health issues because I'm in a good place now. I don't like, you, I kind of want to be defined by my art, by my work. But at the same time, I never shut up about it, really. I never drew the line because people, you can do that. You can say before an interview, no comment. I don't want to talk about this. I don't want to do that. And I never did that because I just felt, actually, I think I've got something to say. And, and I, I think people are handling the topic of eating disorders very irresponsibly, always focusing on the physical aspects, the symptoms, which in my opinion is is very triggering. It confuses the topic, the you know, it, confu- it, it and it obfuscates the issue. It makes people think eating disorders are defined by what they look like and that you can recognize them, you can see them, that they're visible. And so I just wanted to bring it back to the deeper root issues, the, the existential pain, that kind of stuff. Um, so I kept talking about it, and and but I kept finding over and over again, every time I tell this story, it gets turned into a fairy tale. It always, it turns into, okay, so you had an eating disorder, and then Harry Potter came along and you were better. And it drove me mad because um, it felt like an insult to young me, you know? Let's see, 11-year-old me who'd just gone through, or 12-year-old me who'd just gone through a really brutal kind of institution to recover. And, you know, Harry Potter wasn't at the end of that. It could have gone another way. I could have not committed to recovery. I could have not even gone on that audition. So it's insulting to suggest that you can incentivize recovery. And I just felt for the sake of my past self and also for the sake of any young person going through treatment and feeling like the the dream has to come and tempt them out of it for that, for it to be worth recovering. I just had to set the record straight feel a huge relief now that it's down on paper. It's like, cool, people can mess with the story if they want, but I have put it out there for anyone who cares to look at it. And and that's really all I can do. Oh, there's so much there that I, I would love to talk about. And you did make me think of, I mean, it's it's not it's not Harry Potter, but the way that my story was boiled down to going vegan helped me overcome my body image issues or my disordered eating from my past. Mm-hmm. Just like that sentence, which unfortunately is more or less on the back cover of my book, because yeah, I yeah. Didn't, as you know, we don't write the cover, we don't write the copy for the back cover. 
that's the way the press spun it when my book mm. came out. And that was what, you know, what got people to click on the story. And it's just not even remotely true. I can't relate to your story in a lot of ways. I can absolutely relate to that feeling that you can't whittle it down to a sentence. It's a lot more complex than that. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah. No, and it's like, because it's hard that the, you want to, the media wants to, and even like for my own, <laughs> when I'm doing Instagram posts about the book, sometimes I am borrowing my publisher's language because I'm like, uh, this is why it's a book. And I actually had a, a big, oh, sort of a bit of a debacle with an interviewer. We we basically got this huge piece, like exposure in a, in a very big um, newspaper and signed this thing. And then I they sent it back and I said, I need approval and they sent it back and it was the first nine chapters. I'm not even kidding. And the book is 11 chapters. It was nine chapters of the book distilled. This person had taken the book and chopped out all the interesting, quote unquote, interesting bits and put it into a piece. And I was just so upset because I was like, you've just done the opposite of what the book has done. You've you've turned it back into the fictionalized, abbreviated fairy tale. You've lost all the nuance, all the depth, all the complexity. And that what's the point in writing the book? So it has been a real struggle to be like to to sort of play the game of the media, which wants to. Uh, my my therapist calls it the the agony algorithm. You know, it has the agony algorithm where it's like it wants to provoke strong feelings of fear, really, and panic, and just to make you think bad things. And and that's how the media works, and that's how it get gets clicks. So it is very challenging to talk about these sensitive issues but at the same time, you know, you want to get them out there. So you have to use the media. I've not done it flawlessly. It, it has been messy, but, um, and sometimes, you know, you do see the tacky headlines coming out and just kind of go, oh, okay, fine, fine. Somebody will read that and maybe they'll point them towards the book. So that's okay. Right. But I do wish the media was different. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if we, yeah, I agree. I mean, I think that's why we make media with you with mm. Chick Peeps and mm-hmm. me with our hen house, because we, we want to be able to like tell the story responsibly, but unfortunately I haven't yet figured out how to address that big issue. I think it's inherently the problem with, with mainstream media. Well, Evie, one of the reasons why I, I adore you is because you're, you're so outspoken about veganism and animal rights, some of which we'll dig into in a little while, mm-hmm. but I must ask, you know, I, I wasn't sure how to ask this, so I'm just going to. Were you ever concerned about the press and the general public tangling together your veganism with your eating disorders? Maybe not so much the press, but I, I suppose I was worried that some people would read the book, look back on it. Because I'm I'm honest about in the end of the book, like, you know, it's still it's not, it's not, not everything's healed. I don't have an eating disorder. I, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't say, but I, I I still struggle with my relationship with food sometimes. Sometimes I, I suppose I, I worry sometimes that other people would look at that and be like, oh, is your, is your veganism helping you manage this? And I have to say, sometimes I think about that myself even. I'm like, is it because, you know, when you have an eating disorder, you have all these restrictions and you kind of put them, these restrictions to make it feel safe, uh, to make food feel safe. Sometimes I think about the fact that Oh, maybe, I don't know, just having the parameters that veganism draws so I know what I'm going to eat. I have almost more limited choice. I know we always want to talk about how how it, you have tons of choice and you do. But sometimes I do think about the fact that maybe veganism afforded me a feeling of safety to, I, I, and I think it did. I think, you know, when I, when I found veganism, 
in my early 20s, I still had this idea of good and bad foods and thought about food in terms of what's it going to do to my body? How's it going to make it look? And I think when I switched to veganism, it suddenly was like, oh, all these things that I had labeled as good or bad, they just became food, vegan food. And and it was also about like, oh, I'm, I'm patronizing these people, these businesses who I admire, these people who I know their ethics are good. And I think that shift in focus really helped me stop having safe foods. But I mean, I think it would be a fair criticism, I suppose, to say that it, it's helped me manage my relationship with food and 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 it has created a, a little bit of a feeling of safety. I don't know. Do you, do you ever, does that occur to you and how do you think about it? Yeah, I have so many thoughts on this. Like, uh, first of all, the the way that veganism helped heal you, which, you know, I, I'm sort of giving away the end of your book, mm-hmm. I guess, but the, the way that it helped shift your perception around food and, and the, and not only what you're eating, but the point of food, like mm-hmm. the ethics behind it, the, the other bodies that it impacts, not just our bodies that helped me too. That unlocked right. something deep for me. It wasn't as simple as it unlocked it. And then I was fine, but it was a very important hurdle that I overcame because of that. And I will forever be grateful, but I've seen, I've seen it go the other way as well. So I think okay. it depends on the person. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, for example, I think that there are a lot of misperceptions that speaking of the problems with mainstream media that that mainstream media has leaned into regarding veganism being a manifestation of disordered eating. Yeah. So it, it, it it's like who who's looking for the story <laughs> and how are they going to spin it? Yeah, they could see it like that. And having had a history of eating disorders, I don't think my relationship to food is ever going to be quote unquote normal. It's not going to just be like people who don't think about food, who don't, who haven't had that. But it's as healthy as it'll ever be because of veganism. I make an effort, I really do, to maybe because I'm unconsciously afraid of of that. Like say, for example, recently I've been in the press a lot talking about this and, and it has come up, people being like, so how are you now? And that started making me a bit paranoid. I was like, oh God, okay, I have to, I suddenly have to prove I don't have an eating disorder. And so I started like sharing more food and things like that. And then, oh, and then I got, told off for sharing some brand that isn't fully ethical all that stuff so it's just like it's tiring but but yeah I I mean I that's why I I talk positively about veganism I try and share I I don't like to share too much food because it's just like it feels a bit too private and I don't want to get people obsessing about what I eat but um yeah to, uh, to, to me veganism has made food joyful and a celebration in the way it never was for me. I never yeah. saw it as, I saw it as, oh, something I had to do. Oh, fuel I need. Okay. But it really has now become more about nourishing my body and uh, advocating for the kind of world I want to be, which is a more vegan world. Yeah. Well, I love that way of looking at it. And I, I can relate to that. And also I think that sometimes posting photos of food can be really triggering to people. Not, not just uh, not just showing something personal in our life, but also maybe for people with a more disorder, you know, who aren't yet who aren't yet as far along in their healing journey as maybe you or I. They might look at portions or like mm. try and calculate the amount of fat or something like yeah. it can be triggering yeah and uh it can be and then people get really shamey like well you know f- at veg news for example if we post photos of food that there's inevitably just 
8,000 comments about how it's junk food. And we're like, okay, that's not really, not really the point, but I don't know. It's why does it have to be that people just equate veganism with like us eating a head of lettuce? And at what point is it our obligation to confront that? And at what point is it just like, whatever, I can't, I can't, I can't control other people's thinking. But anyway, I, unfortunately, sometimes veganism is a manifestation of someone's disordered eating. In my own personal circle of friends, I'm sad to say that I, I've known vegans who have rocked the message where they've attended protests. They seem to really get it. But when their way of eating, which was riddled with restrictions that went far beyond just avoiding animal products, no longer served them, or maybe it was something they read promised that including animal products would help them achieve their weight loss goals or what have you they left veganism and animal rights behind. And sadly, I've seen this happen time and time again. Can you speak to this, Evie? Do you have any thoughts on what is going on with the mindset of people who hide disordered eating in their veganism? Oh, gosh. Not that you're like the spokesperson. Like, no, even no. Spokesperson. Yeah, now I'm, you I'm know just, everything you know. about everyone. But I'm just curious what your thoughts are here. Hmm. So I actually don't have friends like that, what you're describing. but. There's only like mentions of veganism in my book, really. I'm not, I, I really don't credit it. it. It isn't, it isn't the end of the book. You know, it isn't like, I like found this and, and then that helped because I actually do think sometimes if I'd found veganism earlier, I might not have been ready for it. And I, and I might have used it to control and restrict because you can, you can just go fully plant-based and you can go fully raw and all that stuff. But that's, I think that's up to you to be aware of that stuff. And I did know, so when I went vegan, I had many years of recovery kind of behind me done. But I still felt, so when I first did it, I just tried to, um, I did it like the the way a meat eater would, where it's like, okay, I'll eat the same and just cut out lots of stuff. And immediately it just made mealtimes feel very miserable. And it was like every mealtime was suddenly again associated with shame and guilt because it was like in order to make me stop eating the things I previously had found tasty, I had to guilt myself and kind of look at horrible pictures of, of animals in slaughterhouses. And so I broke it a few times. Like I, I just couldn't keep up the veganism. And eventually a friend told me about the crowding out method. I, I apologize if I've talked about this before on this show, but well, he taught me about the crowding out method. He was like, don't give anything up, just add in lots of vegan products. And eventually your taste buds will adjust, but you have to give yourself time to adjust to this new way of eating. And that's what I did. And and I did it very gently. And But that was me having done lots of therapy and, and having recovered and being very aware of my relationship with food. I really knew, I was like, food has to feel joyful and, and like nourishing because otherwise I won't sustain it. it. It's too triggering. It's too upsetting when every mealtime is a huge emotional ordeal. And it was when it, when veganism felt restrictive. So I had to do it in a way. And, you know, I, I, it took me probably about a year to fully go vegan. And maybe if I'd had more support or more, knew more people, it wouldn't have taken so long. Like I felt guilt about that. I was like, oh, why do I not care about the animals enough that I can't do it overnight the way some people do? But some people really just don't have that weird relationship with food and they're fine. And, and it can be non-triggering. It can just be like, it's just food. It's just matter. Um, but it was never that for me. So I, I did feel really 
bad at first. I was like, oh, I should be doing this better. But but now I'm just like, no, that was my way to health and that was my way to do it properly. And my veganism has stuck and my mental health has stuck in, in a good place. So right. I know I've done it the right way. And and I, I for anyone who's like maybe on that journey, anyone listening, you, you put yourself first and if you really do care about veganism, about the values, you know, about animal rights, then the more you can do it in a way that feels good for you, that feels joyful, that does, it shouldn't feel restrictive or like a sacrifice, the better vegan you'll be like long-term. So yeah, take it slow and, and, and listen to yourself and your own body, I would say. That's an insightful and thoughtful answer. I worried for a moment as I was asking it that I was putting you on the spot a lot. Um, yeah. But I really liked how you how you addressed it because it really is something that for those of us who have complex backgrounds with food and body image, mm -hmm. I can totally see that if veganism came into our life at a moment where we weren't ready for it, that it could backfire in a way. Absolutely. Yeah. And those people like you described, like one of your friends, I think that's up to them to 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 see are they using it for something else like are they using it to numb some other pain which is what an eating disorder is and th they need to try and be conscious and decide do they want to do that or do they want to actually heal it, it might just be a coping mechanism maybe maybe you know their life is difficult and maybe they they need something like whatever it is controlling their food but it it's ultimately very destructive and it's not a healthy way to eat and live so yeah, hopefully they'll bring some awareness to that. Well, I, I also wanted to touch on treatment facilities for eating disorders. A friend recently shared with me a description from an eating disorder clinic that I found very moving, and mm -hmm. I want to share it, a little bit of it with you here. Mm -hmm. Here is what it says. At Alsana, we recognize that vegan clients deserve a safe and welcoming place to begin or continue their recovery journey. For a client with an eating disorder, a commitment to veganism may proceed or intertwine with eating disorder behaviors. Alsana offers a vegan menu with balance and variety to fully nourish the body while honoring client beliefs that transcend eating disorder behaviors and work wow. together to separate and heal those that do not. In a survey we conducted with hundreds of dietitians who specialize in eating disorders, we found that 98% of eating disorder dietitians saw clients who followed a vegan eating style. Of these, 75% of vegan clients realized that their eating disorder was enmeshed with veganism, while 25% of clients realized the eating disorder was separate and veganism was a true value in their belief system. Without a higher level of care option for vegan clients, that 75% didn't have a place to learn that veganism is keeping them trapped in the eating disorder, while the 25% who found it as a true value didn't have a place to recover. Wow. And just to add, I had at least one friend who didn't seek treatment for her very serious eating disorder because she was an ethical vegan mm. and at the time was unable to find a facility that would take her in without compromising oh. her veganism. Do you have any reactions to the fact that so many treatment facilities refuse to cater to vegans? Uh, I think it's such a pity. And I think they're really missing a big healing device, I suppose. I've seen so many of the young people I was in treatment with well, so 18 years ago, go on to be vegan or they always talk about it on their page. And I'm never surprised. I'm like, wow, it's because you're a sensitive person and you get it. You get that it's terrible how we treat animals and that we're exploiting them. And this 
fear that we have of our own bodies being out of our control or, or hurting us. That like that's what's happening to animals. Their bodies are being used against them, force fed and just well cut mm-hmm. up and and used in other ways. People with eating disorders, I say, are very sensitive. They get that. They get veganism, and. Uh, there's just, it, I think it can really help. I think so many eating disorder treatment centers just kind of use food. Well, they they bully and punish you with it. And well, it's like punish reward system. Whereas we need to be finding a way to make food feel nourishing and safe for people with eating disorders and for them to find a way. Like it's not going to click into place instantly to have everything sorted. But like the treatment center I went to, I was basically terrorized out of my own body, like in a, I think in a, like spiritually, I think I was terrified of my body because it was sort of wrested out of my control and I didn't trust it. And it took many years to kind of, to sort of reunite that sense of that body, mind, spirit connection. And I just think veganism can be such a healing device for people. It also can give people a sense of purpose, that there's a purpose for their eating, that it is an extension of their values, their themselves, their heart, their sensitivity. And that can really just help food feel, just have a different energy. So yeah, I could go on, but, um, and it's disappointing that more places don't get it. But I think that that is the mediating perspective that it is restrictive and a sacrifice and you need to just think differently because, you know, when, when you are vegan, when you've done it for a long enough time and it's your norm, it doesn't, it, it doesn't feel like you're giving anything up. You're, you're not, and people say that, I'm sure you get it all the time. Oh, you you can't eat this, can't you? And it's right. like it's not can't, it's won't. I don't want to. I don't have this desire to eat exactly. that. Exactly. It's not food to me. So, yeah, exactly. yeah. I always say I choose not to. <laughs> and and I guess I'll also just sort of give credit where credit is due to the fact that that place does exist, Alsana. It was That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's I I don't know how many facilities have that mindset. My guess is very few. What's so, it? How do you spell it just if any A L S A N A. A-L-S-A-N-A. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Well, hats off to them. When does vegan messaging become weight loss rhetoric? And what can we do to avoid triggering those who have eating disorders? Oh, when does it become... I'm like, fix everything on this this interview. Just (laughs) fix it all. (laughs) I think you're more fit to answer these questions. But I think weight loss is an entirely separate topic. We shouldn't... I mean, and veganism is an ethical belief. It's not a diet. Because I'm not somebody who says nobody should ever lose weight ever. Some people, it, it is helpful to them. Maybe they they have gotten out of, I mean, I, I've had times like that where I've gotten way too obsessed with sugars or something and, and it, it it's affecting my emotional state and everything and it's affecting my skin. So I'll want to restructure and, and, and find a healthy way to get, maybe not lose weight, but just to get in balance with what I'm eating. So I'm not saying, I don't, I don't think, that, I think there are spaces for, healthy weight loss discussions, but I don't think it's anything to do with veganism. Really? Right. <laughs> Isn't it just a bit? But that, I agree with you. I just think that that is the the perception. And like, you know, my more recovered part of me is like, well, Jasmine, other people's perceptions is not my business. All mm-hmm. I can do is speak my truth. But I do see, you know, I see it as an ongoing issue. And so, you know, so many of us have complex histories, sometimes complex current situations with food and eating. And I do realize that 
okay, I'm switching gears again. I promise this won't be scary, but I do realize that dealing with anti-fat bias isn't the focus of your book. And I'm not going to put you on the spot there, but since issues surrounding anti-fat bias very frequently rattle around in my head, and this topic was the focus of a recent article I wrote for Fetch News, the issue of inappropriate backwards, frequently offensive, and oftentimes triggering messaging carried out by many vegan advocacy campaigns is something I find extremely problematic. And I also know from experience that eating disorders such as anorexia are deeply personal and a fight we have inside ourselves. Though I I do want to say, Evie, that if we as a society were able to end anti-fat bias, perhaps we could systemically address eating disorders. I know it's not that simple. I know it's not that cut and dried, but there are absolutely overlaps in the problematic messaging around going vegan. There's promises of weight loss. There's images of, you know, skinny women living their best life. There Mm -hmm. are myths that we, we vegans only eat heads of lettuce and slimy tofu. (laughs) But for those struggling with their body image, whether it is taking the shape of an eating disorder or of self-hatred, messaging like that is damaging and it is alienating. Or at least that's how I see it. Preach. How, yeah. How do you, how do you see it? Do you see an overlap here? Uh, yeah. I mean, I, but I suppose I haven't seen as many of those campaigns recently. Maybe my feed. I, I feel like people have been much more sensitive and aware to not do that. But I always, whenever I see those, you know, I'll, I'll follow some athletes and they'll talk about their vegan diet. And it's like, but that's not your vegan diet. That's plant-based. That's you're mostly just eating plant but you could be eating burgers and sugar and all that delicious stuff as well. <laughs> right. But the, the, yeah. So I don't know. I don't, I don't really have a good answer here, Jazz, but, but I do uh, like, I'm, I mean, just from talking to you from a, that book we read, things like that, I am aware. And even in myself, like the whole thing of, oh, skinny, good, fat, bad. I've been, so much more aware of that recently well from writing the book and just a few other things I, well yeah when when speaking about veganism to try and yeah. well I think it's about addressing the fat phobia in ourselves really yeah. because I still absolutely have that. I think that's absolutely. where it starts yeah absolutely I, I, I mean there's there was times when I was writing the book and I'd be describing people and I wouldn't use like any words like plump or fat or chubby and it was like why am I not using that when I have no problem describing a very skinny person and by the way I, I do try not to um I try not to give too many physical descriptions like because it's not fair of, of people and I'm, I'm I do not want to glamorize eating disorders or anything that's been a journey for me to be like gosh where did I pick up this idea that the, sh- the fat is shameful any of my fat is shameful and I I, st- I still wonder about that with eating disorders how much of it is exacerbated by society and how much of it is I don't know this weird chemical addiction to starvation I don't I truly yeah. don't have the answer there but I think it's a little of both I think it was that for me for example with my eating disorder I liked the feeling of getting smaller but also I noticed that everyone else sort of fetishized thinness and so it it, it was fed by that by that yes. stuff but I, like I'm very aware that I'm still uncomfortable with the word fat. I still am uncomfortable with myself gaining weight. You know, I, I, I'm a healthy weight, but I, it's, I need to do more work to unroot that fat phobia and to just make it more neutral. But it's hard. 
It is hard. There are so many, there are so many contributing factors to this. And the, I just want to say the book uh, that you just mentioned when you said, oh, the book we read, I think that was called What We Don't Talk About When We Talk About Fad by mm-hmm. Aubrey Gordon. If I'm not mistaken, Evie and I read that. We we read books together, which I really love. Challenging books. Yeah, to work it out between us, like a safe space to discuss some of these issues. We've read some anti-racism books together, things like that. I really appreciate that about you. I also really struggle with these issues too. I just want to be clear that maybe you mm-hmm. think I, you know, because I, I was on your podcast, The Chick Peeps, mm-hmm. almost a year ago by the time this airs, talking about this issue actually. And I'm trying and failing <laughs> thus far to sell this book called What I Gained, which is really about a lot of these issues. I do also think that within the Health at Every Size movement, within vegan advocacy, within the eating disorders community, all of it, there does need to be a way to talk about things safely. And I think that there is a binary that exists where it's either this is good or this is bad. Mm-hmm. And like for w- one of the things that I'm going through right now is trying to get healthier because I was just feeling like really unhealthy, like lethargic, Mm -hmm. like hard to walk through the world, move my body. And so part of that process is resulting in a, you know, a more whole foods type of way of eating and resulting in some weight loss because that's where my body goes when I get like that. Other people might have weight gain when they go there. And I never talk about it. This yeah. this conversation is the first time I'm talking about it publicly because I worry about whether people would be like ugh, ripping up the pages of the article I wrote on anti-fat bias mm. and mm. veganism. But there, it is our body. And the reason mm. we're vegan fundamentally is because we respect the bodily autonomy. Right, we respect right. our own bodies, just or we are aiming to, just yeah. as we respect the bodies of the individuals who we don't cons- consume. Mm. And exploit. <laughs> and and so I want to find more of a common ground. And I think that the only way to do it is to have difficult conversations and hold space for multiple perspectives. Yeah. Oh, you said that so nicely. I love that. And I totally relate to what you're saying, because I felt that having spoken about eating disorder, you know, people then are like, oh, you're a eating disorder warrior, you're a heroine, blah, blah, blah. And it's just like, then you can get boxed into it. You're like, oh, oh, I'm never allowed to eat anything that says low calorie or anything. You know, I'm, I'm never allowed to think that I want to set some health goals or, or all that. But you you should be like your your body is yours. It's your little vehicle. As long as the intention isn't coming from wounding, I think, isn't coming from your ego trying to make yourself better to society as long as it's like I want to uh yeah nourish my body work on my body I mean my dad for example he's a 73 year old man he's gotten all into intermittent fasting and it's like that's what's healthy for him at this point he he's doing this mindful stuff it would not be good for me it would be very triggering for me and it also just like I don't need to do that I don't need those kind of extremes but I think everyone has to decide what is right for them and and uh, like what health looks like for them and yeah i i just think we shouldn't be boxed in to other people's expectations and letting them decide how we feed and 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 how we care for our body yeah yeah but it's tricky and it's complicated and and it's it's i think you have to be careful you have to be sensitive because you don't want to trigger other people and especially i get it with you and same with me that's why i don't really post 
I post a lot of chocolate because I'm always like, well, chocolate is something I reclaim from my <laughs> eating disorder and it's a joyful thing. And I, and people know I'm not just eating chocolate all day, <laughs> you know, but I don't want to post like, here's what I eat in a day because yeah, yeah. I'm conscious it very much could trigger, trigger people, but I, yeah. I'll still work on that stuff myself. Um, but yeah, it's hard. And you're famous. I mean, like I, that, that little tiny detail that like, there are a lot of people who are big, gigantic fans of yours who are kind of following you and watching closely. And, it's a bit and I, yeah. I don't yeah. really want, like sometimes I look at the stories and it's like this many thousand people watch it. And I'm like, I don't think I want them <laughs> to know that I am currently digesting, you know, avocado toast. <laughs> That's oh, that's funny. That's very funny. <laughs> but when I read The Opposite of Butterfly Hunting, I or listened to it, I wasn't quite sure how much you would go into your veganism. So I came to it with a very open mind, eager to just like take in what you had to say and how you had to say it. Now, I found the way you addressed your love of animals and your journey to vegetarianism and then veganism to be quite illuminating. Okay. I actually really appreciated the way you just peppered those messages throughout your book. Since <laughs> I see a very important role for vegan authors who aren't directly writing about vegan issues. Nice. So I just wanted to say good on you. I loved that. <laughs> and good. I wasn't sure how subtle it was, but I was really pleased that my editor, she didn't question things. Like even at the end where I'm, uh, I do have this big existential struggle with my cat, for example, that I'm like, hang on, feeding you turkeys, but I'm telling people off online to, for eating turkey. And she didn't, she didn't cut out any of that. Like it's, it's, I, I was really happy. My editor was amazing, Sarah. She just um, kind of let me go on one in some places, yeah. but yeah, I'm, I'm glad you felt it was present, but it needed to be subtle. Well, and your, your childhood story featured a robust cast of characters who kind of like played a role at various points in your love of animals, in your, in your vegetarianism. And though I imagine many people interviewing you want to primarily ask you about your, your siblings and your parents. I actually want to focus for a moment on the non-human animals who shared your childhood with you. Oh yeah. Cause they Please. clearly played a really big role in shaping your relationship with animals. And there were little glimmers Absolutely. of that. I thought, can you talk a little bit about who these animals were? Yeah, of course. Well, yeah, Lucky was one of them. This dog who was, she was our childhood dog. She was always around. And I really do, uh, there's some stories in there about her that are a bit funny and dark. But there's also just the, because when I was in the real kind of grip of the eating disorder, home was not a pleasant place. There was just always tension. My, my sisters were always mad at me. My parents were always worried. I couldn't escape the eating disorder, you know? It was like, it was in my own head, but it was also reflected on everyone's faces around me. And all my relationships kind of just turned to treating the eating disorder. And then I would spend time with animals and there would just be this beautiful stillness, non-judgment. They're not, they weren't angry with me. They weren't wanting something of me. They weren't, they just didn't want, it was just presence. It was just presence and it was just love. And it was such a relief, you know, I think you need those moments when you're going through these things, you just need some forms of escapism and some relationships where it's just comfort and solace. And that's what animals really were to me. That relationship that I had, as I say, we grew up in the countryside, 
not many other kids to play with. So our parents just kept getting us animals. <laughs> we just had about 10 cats with a dog, a mm. guinea pig, rabbit. And I think just having them around and again, that sense of non-judgment of total acceptance that they gave. I think in later years, when I learned about veganism and vegetarianism, the idea that animals were are equals and had should have equal rights, it wasn't radical to me. It was like, of course, I get right. that. I, I get uh, completely, and I so I, I never saw the the vegetarian movement, vegan movement. I didn't see them as mad. I thought it was like those are sensible people. Now I just right. need to learn how to eat the way they do. Yeah. Well, not consuming animals is is an innate instinct. I think of for many children, and yeah. it was for you. I mean, you uh, you stopped eating meat anyway. You started your journey when you were a child. Actually, a story springs to mind of me when I was a little kid going to Burger King with my younger cousin. And I remember her ordering a burger, but without the brown part, <laughs> which, you know, the meat patty. Whoa. <laughs> and, but she didn't, like, she kind of just instinctively knew, like, no, ew. Like, yeah. and, and, you know, a lot of us just think, ew. When I went vegetarian uh-huh. at 19, it was because I was out of the house for the first time in my life. And I realized meat was icky. I, that was it. I, like, I don't think it went beyond that at the time. Mm-hmm. You had that instinct early on as well. And I know that it must have been complicated for your family because you were in the process of dealing with so many eating disorders, but just putting that instinct into its own lane for a second, where do you think this instinct came from? I don't want to eat animal flesh. Mm, I think it was like always there. As soon as I, as soon as somebody stopped sugarcoating, you know, somebody, somebody clearly said, yes, that came from that animal that you see there. So it, it did coincide with my eating disorder because that's when I was obsessively learning about food. I, you know, I wasn't reading. Uh, well, I was reading Harry Potter, but I wasn't reading any other kids' books anymore. I was just reading nutrition magazines. And so I was learning about the calories and the content. And then when I, that, that naturally came up, you know, meat was also demonized nutritionally in these health magazines for what it would do to your heart, your body, how it was made, all the hormones. So I think. I mean, I've yeah. always been grossed out by violence and gore. And as soon as I kind of realized around that age, maybe 10, 11, that there's bloodshed involved, there's a loss of life involved. Oh, that was it. It wasn't food anymore. Right. So vegetarianism was an easy switch. Veganism was harder. And that didn't come, as I say, till in my early 20s. Yeah, I found it harder to see things that you couldn't, because I feel like with meat, it looks like flesh. It looks like Mm-hmm. you know sinews and all that whereas things with dairy and eggs can just look like delicious cakes <laughs> it's right. easier to right. despise them but yeah around that age and it, it i i never went back i didn't yeah I, did, I didn't really struggle with that in the way i struggled to go vegan i would say i just noticed a parallel that i want to point out like you said earlier that and you said in your book, I, I didn't have trauma. Everyone kept looking for the trauma. I didn't have it. I just developed an eating disorder. It wasn't from a broken family. It was from me. And it's interesting because when you talk about your vegetarianism, I kind of hear something very similar. It's not like something happened, like your pet chicken was served to you for dinner one day and you stopped eating animals. But I actually like that. I think that's very relatable to not be able to pinpoint the moment. There were like stories that shocked me and horrified me to my core like babe so it was like there were moments threaded out throughout my childhood and that's what it was weird there was this discordancy between what my parents were showing me and what we were eating at dinner and it was like they love animals they are on the side of babe in the movie babe you know that scene in babe where the animals are like 
they're looking in at the Christmas dinner and the turkey and they're all like, oh, our friend. And I, I always felt like I am one of those animals. You know, I felt on their side. So there were moments like that. There was also, uh, maybe it was, it could have been those or it could have been, there was a very traumatizing story, a bedtime story that my mom read to us about this little girl with her pig. And then one day she came home from school and her brothers were playing with the pig's bladder. That seemed to be a thing that people did in the old days. They they blew it up like a balloon and they were tossing it around. And my, me and my sister were so horrified so upset and I remember my mom being like oh I really should have read that one through beforehand and it was this book full of like little short stories and then she found because we couldn't go to bed we were so upset so she found a story afterwards that was about this stone that this person this I think another little girl picked up and she used to take the stone around the world and then it's it's just like the most innocent silly little story afterwards So do you know what I mean? Like that was yeah. the, the literature that my parents were always reading to us and always saying like agreeing that that was horrible that that, that happened. But I don't know for whatever reason, their social conditioning, the culture, yeah. they didn't extend it into um, into our household. But my mom has said recently, she was like, do you know what? I had a friend at university who was vegetarian, is vegetarian. And I just, she was like, I don't know why I didn't think about it more. So, mm. yeah, everyone has that. these moments. Yeah. You just made me think of that song, you know, that lullaby, like rockabye baby on the treetop. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. at the end, the cradle falls down from a tree. <laughs> like we all grew Horrifying. up just yeah. listening to that song yeah. like, in <laughs> our heads. Like down will come baby cradle and all or whatever it ah! is. Like what? That's awful. Ugh. Well, okay. Well, Evie, I know that you came into great success as a as a child, of course, with Harry Potter. And so therefore, it would not likely be surprising to a little child version of you to have imagined yourself as an actor one day, because it's one of the things you always wanted to be, and that's still your focus. But do you think that little child Ivana would be surprised that the grown-up version of herself would be a spokesperson for so many animal rights issues? Maybe spokesperson, yeah, because I uh, like I was very shy as a child, and I I'm not I'm not very political. I, I you know I I more care about the personal stuff. I care about individual stories, and I always gravitate towards those things. I just I can't. I try and learn the facts, the statistics, all those things that are important, but I my heart always goes to the personal stories. So, yeah, I think maybe young me would be surprised, would kind of be a bit like, well, this doesn't really fit you, <laughs> um, speaking up and, and having an opinion, because I am more of a wallflower and more of an observer. But I think I'm also kind of, I'm questioning that a little bit in my own life at the moment, because having just written the book, really feeling like, okay, cool, this is how I connect with people the best. I'm I'm just getting really special responses from people that it's like I don't get from my acting or even from my activism. So I'm mm-hmm. I'm really rethinking how I do activism at the moment. Like, you know, our, our podcast Chick Peeps is on pause. I'm just like, well, can I be writing stories? Like, you know, can, can I write a Charlotte's Web, but mm-hmm. have it more address factory farming? So yeah, I, I don't know if my voice and my talents are best used in activism, but I, I just love the people I meet, I admire the people. So yeah, that's something I'm sort of working through. 
Oh, well, I'm intrigued. And I guess it also depends on how you describe activism. I mentioned earlier that I'm passionate about personal narrative as a means of social change, as I know you are too, especially mm-hmm, given mm-hmm. what you just said. So what is the value of us finding and telling our stories? How can it impact the world? Oh, in a huge way. It wakes people up. Like books have that power because even though it's written by somebody else, it's quite it's a it's a private experience and it's a collaborative experience between the author and the reader because it, it, I've keep seeing this that people resonate with they pick up on the things in the book that resonate with them that they know to be true themselves maybe they didn't have the words for it before and I just think it makes us feel less alone it it, it liberates us from this isolation and from feeling like nobody will understand us nobody will accept us and and that's just such a gift you know when mm-hmm. when you can see people in their in their pain and and make them feel comforted and supported in their darkness i think that mm-hmm. empowers people i've had a lot of people since writing the book say oh you know this story is me but also this makes me want to write my own story and yeah. how cool how amazing that people are stepping up more and owning their story and just becoming empowered People, I think because, you know, having had fame at a young age, I did, I saw people like, I saw both ways. I saw, I had idols who I sort of gave my power away to. And then I had people deify me. And I just found, oh, well, actually, you know, being my own idol, they, my, per, you know, being the person that I most look up to that, or maybe not look up to, but uh, I don't know. Uh, I, I do want to be my own role model. Yeah. And I, I want to give that to people because I, I, I see when, when people give it to me, when they want to look to me for the answers, they compromise their own gifts and uh, they deprive the world of, of their light. So yeah, I just think stories, personal stories can really empower people to um, recognize and embrace their own gifts. Yeah. That's really, really well said. And, you know, as I've been meeting with flock members one-on-one this year, I have actually seen how many people are interested in sharing their own stories. One of the most empowering parts of having a memoir out for me was the fact that I recognized that when people are reading my book, it isn't about me at all. It's about them and how they are reflecting their own experiences, their own mm-hmm. worldviews, their own thoughts, their own journeys. So it really becomes about the reader mm-hmm. and actually kind of re- removing myself from my story in that way is the only way I was able to get through it. Cause otherwise mm-hmm. it would have been like too much, ironically, mm-hmm. given the title of my book, but it isn't like the Jasmine show, but it's more yeah. like, how can this maybe help you see yeah. something about yourself and about the world? Oh, absolutely. No. And I think that was always my worry with writing mine. Like eating disorders can very quickly become self-indulgent because eating disorders are like this complete submission to the ego. So yeah, I think you always have to hold on to what is the higher purpose here? What, like if, down to every sentence, what is this sentence trying to do? Am I trying to prove to you that I w- had a scary eating disorder and that m- my life was very interesting and dramatic? Or am I trying to illuminate something and and bring light to a darker issue i I think yeah you have to ask those questions because yeah if you're in your ego you'll write a very different book and Mm -hmm. maybe one that the world doesn't need (laughs) right yeah Yeah, totally 
Well, so speaking of things that I hope the world needs, another thing that we have in common is that we both have vegan-themed podcasts, and mm-hmm. we both find a deep community in our wonderful subscribers. Like, I, I don't say that lightly, and I know that you feel the same way about yours. I, know, I also, so, yeah, yeah, <laughs> the best. I know that Chick Peeps holds a very deep place in your heart. I'm sure that many of our listeners are already familiar with Chick Peeps, but for those who aren't, can, can you tell us a little bit about what it is and perhaps some of the favorite subjects you've explored on the show? Yeah, for sure. So we'll just I'll start by saying Chickpeep is on break. We are not as hardcore as you, Jazz. I don't know how you do it. It's incredible. <laughs> but yeah, we, we, we do it in seasons and it's four of us. It's me and three friends. It's really all about showing a very positive side of veganism. We want to make people feel welcomed. And it was, it kind of started from I noticed that hanging out with my vegan friends, how much fun we had. But we would also talk about all oh, this thing that's come up, this issue in veganism. What's your take on this? How do I handle this? And just chatting about it in a non-intimidating, curious way. So I was like, I just want to create that because I think a lot of people think when I go vegan, I'll be lonely and I'll, or, or I'll be, uh, they, they do feel like they don't fit in fully with the rest of us. And nobody wants that. Everyone wants to belong. So I think Chick Peeps, we created it to kind of give that sense of belonging to new vegans to, to make pregans, I suppose, make them feel welcome, a safe place for them to ask questions and give vegans a, a place to just have a laugh, have fun, feel supported, I feel like they're hanging out with their mates. And those have always been my favorite podcasts where it's ones where you're like, oh, these feel like my friends. They just don't know me yet, you know? Um, so it was, it was about yeah. creating that community. Oh, I love that. I'd love to know some of the topics you've explored and maybe even some that you would like to explore further. Oh, I'm very curious to talk more about this whole vegan capitalism idea, which I keep, mm. I see it keeps coming up. I've been talking to Tyler about this of the Chick Peeps. Because, uh, you know, there was that, there, the, PETA did this campaign with H&M recently. I'm so confused. I'm like, do we support the big brands and say, cool, cool, do more of this? Or mm-hmm. or do do we ignore it and boycott it? Is it not for us vegans because it's actually not very ethical because their, their human rights practices are not great? Mm-hmm. That's an understatement. <laughs> and, and, you know, Tyler had some really interesting idea. He Well, just perspectives. He was like, I, I think it comes down to consumerism isn't activism. You can't buy your way to liberation. You can buy your way to kinder choices, but not to, not to total liberation. So yeah. that's something that's on my mind a lot at the moment. Because, you know, being, having a platform, I'm always getting people... I mean, I had a, a while ago, McDonald's asking me, would I post about their burger? And I was like, oh, that is no. I mean, I'm glad that they those choices are out there. But I was like, I don't think I want mm-hmm. to be involved. But it's it's confusing and it's a question I have. So maybe next season we'll talk more about that. That's awesome. I can't wait. I, I'm excited. I love hearing conversations like that. And I, I, I don't think there is one answer, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. I don't think so either. But I like just having very clever activists on to help me, to help me find my way. But that's kind of how Chick Peep started. It was like me as a vegan being like, damn, I don't know how to do this. I don't know if I agree with every vegan thing that's told to me. So I Mm -hmm. want to question it and I want to find my way with it. Because I don't want it to just be a cult and to just be like, here's a list of rules, you know. 
I mean, other topics we've had, we're always talking about effective advocacy, that we've had some great chats with Melanie Joy, Dr. Melanie Joy, uh, Victoria Moran, I love her, she talks about attractivism. And we had, oh, I loved, we had an episode with the Food Environment Project. That was very eye-opening to me. Yeah. All the stuff about ethical chocolate. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's really cool. I I mean, I know that uh, you have a very devoted following there. And I I love that there's a a place for people who are just beginning to think about these issues to come to kind of rattle them around in their head and that you offer multiple perspectives with your co-hosts. And, and speaking of, of podcasts, it feels like a perfect moment to bring up Kinder Beauty's new podcast, Ooh, A Little yeah. Kinder. Uh, Yay. But actually, <laughs> before we do, let's talk about Kinder Beauty, and then we'll talk about the podcast. As our listeners probably already know, and as I touched on earlier, it's a vegan, cruelty-free, clean beauty subscription box that you co-founded. And I have the great honor of being the vice president of editorial over there. So why does this company and vegan beauty as a whole mean so much to you? Gosh, how do I answer this? Having just talked about vegan capitalism. No, but that's what I said. There's no one right way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I, yeah. I, I, you didn't say it's bad. You just, <laughs> no, no, I mean, no. you said that it's it's complex. Yeah, it's complex. Well, I, I think we started this because we found that everyone, pretty much everyone is unanimous in not agreeing with animal testing, you know, not feeling like there should be more ethical solutions, that it should be easier to avoid animal testing um, in your beauty products. And, and for me, feeling like that is the very antithesis of beauty, you know, animal testing, that's just the most ugly, brutal practice in the world. The, the company was founded on the idea that we just need to make it more accessible for accessible for people and then they'll make kinder choices. And yeah, I met Andrew and Daniela. It was Andrew's idea, really. He brought us together and yeah, we just started this thing up and it's grown and grown. And I think on a more personal note for me, I just so believe in beauty, in bringing beauty into the world. And I think it's very sad how beauty has been tainted by by being seen as being frivolous or self-indulgent or silly just because it's not really doing anything in the world. Whereas actually, to me, it has such a effect on my soul. Like I, And I don't mean, uh, you know, beauty as in, uh, oh, p- pouty lips or those, those definitions of perfect beauty that society gives us. I mean like flowers or a a tree in autumn or my cat, you know, I think beauty has this ability to really uplift you and, and to make you feel hopeful about the world and doing that for yourself, like using beauty products to almost adorn yourself, to decorate yourself. To me, that is a self-love practice. And, and every day when I get up and it's like, what am I going to look like today? Oh, I might uh, give myself sparkly eyeshadow or I might just keep it natural. That, that, as I say, it's self-love and it's literally using your hands to appreciate yourself and appreciate your beauty. So I just like, it's such a nice combination of things. And I love seeing especially activists, vegan activists, taking the time to treat themselves and to pamper themselves with um, the kind of beauty products. It's such a joy. Well, and also in your book, The Opposite of Butterfly Hunting, I actually noticed, I don't know if you did this on purpose or not, but I actually noticed that there were these little glimmers of self-care, even when you were otherwise seeming to be very broken, like Mm -hmm. very 
much in pain, there would be, a, you would put, put a face mask on or you would, mm-hmm. you would like have everyone else go away. So you could do nail art or on yourself mm-hmm. or other people. Like there were so many little moments where I was like, oh, she is latching on to beauty. And so I, mm-hmm. I noticed that as a theme that helped to lead to your healing. Yeah. Yeah. You're noticing that as the social media vice president as well. <laughs> Being like, ah, <laughs> right? no, but, yeah. um, uh, no, you're, you're, sorry. What I got your role wrong there. Oh no, that's <laughs> okay. I'll, I'll take all the titles. Yeah. <laughs> editorial. But editorial. That's okay. Yeah. 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 Um, We're actually changing my title soon because we realize it's not quite it either. I think it's ah. going to be like creative projects because it is a little broader. broader. We, we don't know what I, we don't know. We what just I keep do. throwing new jobs at you and saying, <laughs> well, make it fit. Same, I think that the job <laughs> is leading. And then we're like, how do we change her title to match? Yeah, the job? Yeah. But anyway, yeah. Yeah. Oh, no, but you're right there. Like, yeah, beauty has always sustained me and given me hope. And um, it's art, it's expression and it's self-care. So those are all three things I love. And speaking of which, now let's talk about A Little Kinder. By the time this episode airs, A Little Kinder will have already aired as well. And Mm -hmm. I can help fill in here since I executive produced the show, which you and Daniela hosted. Mm -hmm. So for the sake of our listeners here who don't know yet, A Little Kinder is a feel-good, short-form podcast that really explores basically how to be kinder to ourselves, to each other, to the animals, to the planet. And we started it because we think that kinder beauty is the beginning of a dialogue around what it means to be kinder and to show up for ourselves with true compassion, including compassion for everyone around us. And that is reflected in the product itself, by which I mean the the glorious beauty box, just Mm -hmm. as much as it is reflected in in the stories of the people that we interview for A Little Kinder. And and how to be kinder. Yeah, it's really an endlessly interesting layered conversation, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Because everyone wants to be kinder. And I know our first season is just a short five episodes, but hold on to your hats because I foresee season two is going to be big. But can you give us an idea of what you enjoyed the most from hosting the first season of A Little Kinder? Well, I like how it pushed me. So we did that random acts of kinder or kindness, Mm -hmm. kinder. Not yeah. good grammar, but we... No, we we changed it. I think the first (laughs) episode is random acts of kindness and the second one we're like, Random acts of kinder. We're going for it. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, that challenged me because I think to do kind acts, you do have to push yourself out there a little bit and be a bit creative. And and some of them were big and some of them were really, really tiny. But yeah, it was it was definitely good for me to be like, okay, cool. What how can I make somebody's day better? Yeah. That that was good. And then just hearing from all these thoughtful, compassionate we had mostly women, didn't we? And we had Andrew. Women and Andrew. Andrew. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, these activists who I admire and like, how do they balance being kind to the world and kind to themselves too? Because you can get to a point where you're giving too much and then you have nothing else to give. And I I found they all had such thoughtful answers and such helpful answers for balancing that. I suppose just the the theme, because having done a vegan podcast and uh, having a lot of vegan conversations, it's like, okay, this is a bit more broad. And, and, you know, there are people who can't be vegan because of their living conditions or also because of their health. I have a lot of friends who are so allergic to lots of vegan things. And a little bit of me sometimes feels like, oh, I want, I want to create a, a nice space for them too. And, and we try to do that with chick peeps. We try. But I, I felt like almost kindness is welcoming even more people in and it's it's a more universal need um yeah so yeah 
those for all those reasons i really enjoyed it and love who we love the guests we had on i can't wait for people to hear them oh i know me too and i like the way you put that a lot it was very compassionate i could sense myself internally getting judgy for a second while you were like my friends have health issues and can't be i want to be like give me their phone numbers i'll help but that's not kind i think you're right that kindness and the idea of being kinder the idea of of offering compassion and generosity is the key to helping people to find their way toward veganism, whatever that, mm-hmm. however that shakes out for them. And I am hopeful that that shakes out with full veganism, but. Exactly. I love that you never lose the, um, you never downplay veganism <laughs> as like a, a hugely important social justice issue. Yeah. It, it's great because especially on, you know, kinder, sometimes we can get lost talking about sales and things like that. And you're always like, veganism bring it back i know <laughs> i think i annoy people though at, at kinder oh, beauty like do it do i am it. the text yeah. vegan like anyone who gets a job at kinder within like their first few days i send them a copy of fabulous vegan and i'm like let's get on the phone this week and oh, talk about protein <laughs> how you can yeah incorporate make some yeah. kinder choices <laughs> so speaking of making kinder choices i must before you go i and i know i'm keeping you a really long i hope you're okay with time because i know i'm like keeping you along longer oh, than i said i Okay, well, I must ask you about the short film you just started, which is available on YouTube, mm-hmm. and it's called You Eat Other Animals. It's less than five minutes long. We'll link to it in our show notes. And if you're listening to this interview, you absolutely must watch this. Evie, can you give our listeners a brief idea of what the plot is? Okay, yeah. Um, so it's a it's a comedy, really. It's a little sketch. So I'm playing an, an alien and uh, an actress called Anna Valentine. She's playing an alien where these two alien... I don't know if we're queens or if we're just, I don't know, if we're citizens. Regal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we sort of um, come across these two human men and we have them on our spaceship and we invite, you know, we're, we're taking them to our fabulous alien planet. And then we present the meal, which is like, <laughs> which is not something I would eat. It's like the most vegan, stereotypical vegan looking, alien vegan looking food you've ever seen. And they, they basically, the boys start asking oh, what's this? Don't you have meat? And it's just a conversation. How I often think about this, how aliens would feel about how we treat animals, how a total outsider from the planet, how would they react to our food system and the way we treat other beings on this planet? It's just asking provocative questions and the guys can't really come up with good justifications. I loved it. I loved every actor in it. I loved those tiny little moments. Like I I don't want to ruin it, but like the little leather jacket moment, like all of it. There was so much said in moments between dialogue. I just appreciated it. And, and, and to reiterate, it's called you eat other animals. Mm -hmm. So not to put you on the spot, but why do people eat animals? Hmm. Because um, that's what we've always done, I think. And because they're not, I don't know, they're they're afraid of change. They're afraid of changing their own behavior. I don't know, laziness. (laughs) (laughs) But like, I do know there are people who it's not always easy for them to not eat them. But Mm. I think for the majority of people, it's just they don't want to do some deep introspection that they really need to do. Right. What do you oh, think? I love that. What's your answer to that? Oh, damn it. Threw it back at me. I think <laughs> you hit on it. I think it's bec- I think it is a lack of looking deeper. Yeah. Really. Yeah. I mean, I just think that even even your mother's reaction to your ch- the what you just said 
earlier in this interview, mm. your mother's reaction to your childhood vegetarianism, or not yours, but she said she had a her, friend who was vegetarian. Her her, yeah, yeah. Her, her and 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 later she was like, "Huh, why didn't I think about that more deeply?" And so many people's stories that I hear from interviewing them on our headhouse started with that roommate. Like started with that moment, started with someone sitting across from them at the dinner table with no animals on their plate. And they said, huh. In fact, Peter Singer of No Relation to Me, that's how he went vegan ultimately mm-hmm. was that someone across from him didn't have animals on his plate. And he said, I, I noticed you don't have meat. Why? And, and the person across from him said, well, I just am not comfortable with the way they're treated. And, and Peter Singer went, huh. <laughs> and then wrote Animal oh. Liberation and birthed a movement. You know what wow, I mean? Wow, incredible. So yeah. that's what it takes. Now, Evie, I certainly hope you'll stay on for just a few minutes after this interview to do some bonus content for our flock. I promise I'll keep it short. Sure. But before we get to that, I must ask you just uh, like a uh, question about healing and hope. I just want, I, I've been saving this for the end. Okay. As you talked about so eloquently in the opposite of butterfly hunting, your journey to healing was a long and winding one. And understanding that so many of our listeners have their own experiences, not only with eating disorders, but with anxiety or depression or other types of inwardly focused mental health issues. What words of wisdom do you have? And I know I know that this is a big question. I keep asking you these giant questions, like solve the world on our mm-hmm. house today. But what I'm asking is this. Do you have any insight into how people can begin to address their most painful parts and start the process of healing? Hmm. First of all, it's a journey. It's a very long journey for me. Recovery was, and I didn't even realize it, that for many years after I was still dealing with the effects and still dealing with the trauma of the eating disorder and then of recovery. So I would say just, I mean, it's it's actually in my book. I had a conversation with my mother where she told me she feels like she didn't fully recover until the age of 29. And, you know, so I think you have to cut yourself some slack. Like, obviously there'll be more intense periods where you're working on these things, but also just know you, you have to, you know, you'll live your life and you'll go on. And, and, and there are moments in life where it will, you'll be prompted to, to do some deeper healing. But I think also as well that you have to just sometimes just escapism is good. Like for me, creativity was that. There were really times in my life where I just uh, like to say, to call it what it was, I hated myself. I really couldn't, I, I couldn't handle just, yeah, who I was, having a body. I really hated the body I was in. And at moments like that, it, it it maybe wasn't helpful to try and focus on that and try to heal it. But what was healing was putting my attention into the things I loved. So that was like drama, dancing, all types of creativity, crafts. And I really found that by pouring my energy and my focus into these things I loved, I would create things and that would sort of give me back some self-love I'd start to rebuild my sense of self yeah it, it was it was both escapism and healing I don't know if that's helpful but that was my rocky road of recovery of you know sometimes doing deep healing with therapists and and really working on the issue and other times just escaping and finding a, a, a sort of a, a semblance of self-love through creativity and through the things that I loved. And I really do think if you follow your heart and you pursue the things you're passionate about, it'll give you the keys to who you're meant to be. You'll find bits of yourself that were previously uh, missing or not like, you know, you recover these little bits of yourself. Mm. 
So yeah, that would be my advice. And on the darkest days, whether that means being in a treatment facility for an eating disorder or simply living with this harsh reality that animals are treated so badly all the time in such an enormous and horrendous way, on those darkest days, what gives you hope? Nature, I think. Going out for a walk and seeing nature thriving, that it will continue to thrive, that it is so resilient. Yeah, if we leave it be. And and things like going to sanctuaries, talking to other activists. Oh my God, that is the most restorative thing. Talking to other hopeful individuals or people maybe who've been in this community for like 30 years and who've seen the development, them seeing the progress we've made and, and seeing their you know, undimmable enthusiasm and idealism. That makes me be like, cool, I can't give up because these people aren't giving up. Love that. But yeah, on days where I'm just like sad and, and want to get away from it, I'll just go for a walk in the park, admire the leaves, see the ducks. I love how happy and free they are. Squirrels. I look at squirrels and I'm like, you guys have it good. Nobody's really trying to oppress you guys. And cool, we'll, we'll get there eventually with the other species. So yeah, simple things like just admiring nature. Evie, I can't thank you enough for joining us today in our house. You are such a bright light in a dark world. And I have so much respect for anyone who is brave enough to step into their vulnerability, share their personal story. I know that that is an act of grace. It is, it is rooted in, in the intention and the hope that you can make life better for someone who is reading your story or hearing you now in our house. So thank you for writing the opposite of butterfly hunting for all you do to change the world for animals. I am in, I am truly in awe. Likewise, I can say all that back to you. Like, oh, <laughs> thank you and for your beautiful words and for getting it. And and also for just like, yeah, I, I, talking about veganism through this book because, yeah, not many people have wanted to. But yeah, I think there, there definitely is a lot of that messaging in the book. So it's been such a pleasure to talk about this with you. And, and yeah, thank you for all that you do to keep vegan activists and people who are searching for how to help animals for keeping their spirits void up. It's really important. Well, can you please tell our listeners how they can get your book and follow you online and listen to your podcast, The Chick Peeps? Yeah. Uh, my book is the opposite of butterfly hunting, the tragedy and the glory of growing up. You can probably get it uh, online most places or at your local bookshop. I'm sure you can order it. I'm sure they'd appreciate that. Um, supporting independent bookstores. And you can find me on Instagram at Ivana Lynch. I mostly just use Instagram. That's my favorite one. And I replied to comments there. That's that, really. Chick Peeps will uh, will be probably be back. Well, it will be back next year. I'm very sorry for neglecting my dear sweet Chick Peeps. But yeah, we'll <laughs> people, be back soon. <laughs> people can listen from the beginning and get ready for the next the next season of yeah. it. So thank you so much, Evie. I love you and you're the very best. Thank you. Love you too. Thank you, Jazz. If you like what you're listening to, and I hope you do, then please consider taking a minute out of your day today to leave us a friendly review. You can do it on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or Stitcher or on Facebook or wherever you listen to podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. The more we get out there, the more our henhouse will be in front of people's eyeballs when they're putting in search terms in their podcasts and the more we could join forces together to elevate the voices of the animals and change the world for them. So thank you so much in advance for leaving us a friendly review. Anxieties are rising. Our first story is good news. And it's not exactly new news. It's just compounding some old news. Well, let me just get to the story. 
Danone invests $49 million to convert French dairy factory into oat milk plant. This is from Veg News. And they are obviously having anxiety about the the status of cow-based dairy as opposed to plant-based dairy. They don't care, though. I guess they're not that anxious. They just want to get in where the getting's good because the middlemen don't care. They just want to make money. They don't care whether their dairy is from cows or their dairy is from plants. So they are now investing $49 million to build this production plant in France. No country is more devoted to dairy, cow-based dairy, I think, than France. And they're they're going to be selling oat products under their under their new brand, Alpro. I don't know whether they know that's very close to the name of a dog food in, in the United States. Well, anyway, I'm not sure they're selling this, planning on selling this in the U.S., and they can always give it a different name. The real point, obviously, is that they anticipate growth in the demand for dairy-free products. And instead of building a new plant, they're converting a dairy plant. So maybe they even see, a, you know, a drop in the in the sale of cow-based dairy. This is their facility in Villecomtal sur Arro. That's not important. I just wanted to use my very bad French pronunciation. And this is not their first step. Like I said, this isn't really huge new news. It's huge additional news because in 2016, Danone bought Whiteweight Foods. So they are the owners of Silk, So Delicious, Vega. And they did that for $12.5 billion. So they're getting into this in a, in a big deal. They're currently working on what they call their plant-based 2.0 platform. And they're going to be introducing new products called Silk Next Milk and So Delicious Wonder Milk. I don't know how many milks <laughs> the market can tolerate, but apparently... Danone, which knows more about this than I do, thinks it can tolerate a lot. They also bought Earth Island in February, and they're, of course, the Follow Your Heart brand. If you don't want to deal with big big corporations, and I'm totally fine with that, we're starting to be in a position that we have to really look closely as to who owns these brands because the big money is getting into dairy, plant-based dairy, and, of course, plant-based other things as well. So, so uh, pretty pretty good news, I have to say. A lot more in this article. It's actually a pretty interesting article about other things that that other companies are releasing, like dairy-free cheeses and and Bell Group, which is a a large uh, French company, has launched a number of cheeses. And you know, again, it's one thing when any place does plant-based dairy, but when France does it, you got to pay attention because France loves their dairy. All right. NCBA opposes repeal of navigable waters protection rule. All right, this story takes a little bit of explanation. This is from drovers.com. And, you know, you would think that the NCBA, which is the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, would not be in favor of something called the navigable waters protection rule. We always worry that the beef industry is not trying to protect our navigable waters. But then if you thought that, it's because you don't understand what a scam this has all been. In 2015, the waters of the United States rule had expanded federal jurisdiction over what they call small, isolated water features. And so they hated that. And uh, and so under the Trump administration, they had gotten this new rule passed, and it actually was much weaker than the old rule, so it wasn't really protecting navigable waters. Well, I guess it was protecting navigable waters. The whole point was that they didn't want small waters um, to be protected. These were things like stock ponds, 
ephemeral features, i.e. water that only flows during rain, grassed waterways, and other isolated bodies of water that impact agriculture. Well, you know, if there's a lot of shit, which is what we're really talking about here, in stock ponds, water that only flows during rain, and, you know, rain does occur (laughs) from time to time, grassed waterways, so there's grass there, but it's still a waterway, and other isolated bodies of water, if those waters are contaminated, it does seem like uh, that would be still a problem. So they got rid of that under the Trump administration in the courts, in federal court. The court struck down that rule saying that the it would re- result in environmental um, disaster. Well, I don't know whether the court used the word disaster, but it would not be in compliance with the Clean Water Act. They're just really upset that the Biden administration doesn't want to put something similar back. Uh, They've criticized the Biden administration's repeal of this rule, even though it was struck down by the courts. What they're really afraid, of course, is that the Biden administration is going to put something in that's more similar to the prior rule, which was actually trying to take a very broad definition of what waterways should be protected by the federal government from, as I say, shit. That's what we're talking about here. So, as I said, it required a little bit of a complicated explanation, but but we shall see what happens because their anxieties are rising about that. They do not like the idea that we're going to be protecting those types of waterways at all. And then finally, American beef producers want the door shut on all fresh beef from Brazil. Well, I bet they do. This is from Food Safety News by one Dan Flynn. And it wouldn't be surprising that American beef producers would want the door shut on any beef from anywhere other than from them. What this article considers interesting is both the National Cattlemen's Beef Association and RCAF are are in unity about this, even though these, these two organizations don't really often agree on, on what needs to be done. And the National Cattlemen's Beef Association kind of represents the the industry, and RCAF is representing uh, ranchers and producers. Oh, so what they're really upset about here, according to them, is mad cow disease. Remember mad cow disease? Or they don't call it that anymore. They, they prefer to use the initials because then people don't know what it is. That's BSE, bovine, bovine spongiform encephalopathy. I can't believe I grabbed that out of my brain. They say that Brazil is not is not checking carefully enough for it and and that we're putting American consumers at risk. What's interesting here is that this is one of the reasons they're trying to get uh, this country of or- origin labeling and so that people will know what country their beef, their dead cows are coming from. They're trying both to get Brazilian uh, fresh beef uh, banned and also to pass this legislation so that consumers can always make the decision to buy good old American beef. You know, better idea would be for consumers not to buy beef because I doubt that American beef is safe from BSE. As, as we established back when it was a big issue, the problem is they just don't check. I mean, <laughs> yeah, you're totally safe from it if you don't really check for it. We'll see what happens with this, or or we won't, because it's hard to keep track of all these shenanigans. But I do my best for you. And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. Well, that's it for this week's show. If you like the podcast, we're asking for your support as we kick off our end-of-year fundraising season. 
We have had a truly epic year and we couldn't have done it without you. We're hoping you'll join us once again to ensure another productive, fabulous year for our hen house. And the best part is that if you contribute between now and December 31st, your donation will be tripled dollar for dollar if we reach our goal of $20,000. That means that with your donation, plus our amazing barnyard benefactors and an added boost from an anonymous donor, we are hoping to raise $60,000 total for end of year. That's our main fundraiser of the year, so it's kind of a big, gigantic deal for us. And we can't do it without you. The only way we'll receive the matching funds is if we successfully reach our goal of raising $20,000 from our loyal supporters and listeners, that's you, by the end of the year. Huge or modest, every donation counts and will help us reach our goal. If you're not already part of the flock, we invite you to join for $10 a month or $100 a year. You'll get some really cool perks, including weekly bonus content, access to our private Flock Facebook group, and an invitation to Flock First Friday Zoom meetings, plus the opportunity to have a one-on-one Zoom meeting with me to talk about anything activism related. And if you donate $100 or more, I'm going to send you a personalized video message to show you my undying love and gratitude. So if you appreciate our hen house and if you appreciate our mission to effectively mainstream the movement to end the exploitation of animals, if you find community and solace in our shows and our resources, and if you believe in the change-making power of indie media, please make a donation before December 31st and your donation will be tripled if we get to that 20,000. Contributions of any amount are greatly appreciated. To support us today, visit ourhenhouse.org slash donate. Again, that's ourhenhouse.org slash donate. Another great way to support us is to leave us a fabulous review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts or like us on Facebook. You could also leave us a review there or follow us on Twitter or Instagram. Across the board, we are at Our Hen House. If you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using Our Hen House as your favorite charity. And of course, tell your friends about us. Tell your enemies about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so very much. And thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, and to Jen Riley for her work in producing this podcast. Thanks to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Podcast Haven for their work editing this podcast. I'm looking at you, Eric Montgomery, and to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez. We'd also love to give a shout out to the amazing Veronica Kalinska, who designed our brand new logos and other graphics. We're going to be back next week with a brand new show. So don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Jasmine Singer and let's change the world for animals.